For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, every step in the bourbon making process is carefully crafted just like Bill Samuels Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Charlotte's everywhere these days. At the Charleston Wine and Food Festival last year, I saw that Charlotte had bought a sprawling corner booth to sell its food culture. When I opened my March 2019 issue of Garden and Gun, I saw that Charlotte had bought a two-page spread to advertise a speakeasy. A two-page spread for a speakeasy is supposed to be secret. And historically, there have been a lot of Charlottes. Charlotte is Milltown, Charlotte is Banking Hub, Charlotte is Boom City. The city has made very specific decisions about what stories to tell in this Boom City moment. In the process, they've recognized and celebrated white tablecloth chefs and the sorts of bartenders who refer to themselves as mixologists. (laughs) I can't ever hear the word mixologist without thinking about guys in tight pants with complicated mustaches. (laughs) That doesn't beg a question, but these (laughs) other discussions do beg a question. In the process of selling Charlotte, what's gained and what's lost? I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Irina Zhuroff, who lives up the road in Boone, North Carolina, reports this story. On an evening last November, about 65 Charlotteans, a smattering of city representatives, and a group of food writers gathered at a smart, farm-driven restaurant called The Stanley. It was a Monday. The Stanley is normally closed Mondays, but it was a buzz with diners. I'm Lisa Eversole. I read about it in the paper. We love to eat. Um. It was a practice run for the meal a group of invited chefs would cook at the James Beard House in New York City the following week. The dinner, for which these diners were the guinea pigs, would show off the, quote, exciting culinary future of Charlotte. So I wondered, what had the past looked like? What had changed in this town? Oh, my God. Food has gotten so much better. Lisa's husband, Jim, chimed in. I mean, we used to go to Charleston all the time for good food. There was nothing downtown. Nothing. Now, it's everywhere. The food was taking a bit to come out, so I wandered over to Renee McLeod, another diner. Yeah, it's changed really dramatically. There's a lot more variety now, a lot more inventiveness. I think it used to be more just kind of steak and potatoes type places downtown, and now there's a whole spectrum of options. The dinner had been organized by the Charlotte Regional Visitors Authority, whose job is to attract tourists to the town. So the Charlotte Regional Visitors Authority is really invested in promoting Charlotte and everything that Charlotte has to offer. That's Laura White. She's the CRVA's Director of Communications. Culinary is a huge part of that. It's the number one activity for visitors once they're here in Charlotte. And so we want to lift up the culinary scene as best we can. In other words, the New York dinner would be a marketing blitz, Charlotte's debut. 
Food writers would write about it, eaters would read about it, and fingers crossed, book a visit to the city to spend their dollars. There's so many other southeastern cities that are known as being food destinations, and we really feel like we can compete and bring something to that conversation as well. Finally, out came the food. Chef William Disson from his restaurant Haymaker made mussels and escabeche. Joe Kindred from the eponymous Kindred as well as Hello Sailor prepared pasta with venison. I thought it would be really neat since we're going up to represent North Carolina. I thought it would be fun to do an ingredient that's like really indigenous to where we're at and that's venison. Um, you know, it's deer season down here so I thought that was cool. I did not go out and hunt the deer so sorry. <laughs> I'm not that hardcore. Braised drumsticks with baby root vegetables from Bruce Moffat of restaurants including Barrington's and Good Food on Montford. Then the Stanley chef and owner, Paul Verica. Uh, thinking about the weather and how chilly it'll be in New York, I wanted to do something kind of soul warming. Um, so I decided on the short ribs and uh, we did that with a sancho puree. From the meal ended with a hibiscus and pear crumb cake from Ashley Boyd, who makes pastries at 300 East. It was all five full-size courses of it, plus appetizers and drinks to match, an elevated ode to hearty eating. Tender hunks of meat shared the stage with artfully smeared vegetable purees. The drinks were plentiful, complementing the flavors of each course and adding to the festive mood. In their closing remarks to the diners that night, the chefs all kept repeating the same phrase, like a mantra. A rising tide lifts all ships. The CRVA spends about $5 million a year promoting the city. Recently launched their rebranding campaign. The tagline is, Charlotte's got a lot. They're pushing the city's outdoor access, arts and culture, diversity, and, of course, food to people who think there's not much going on in Charlotte. Or don't think about it at all. Ryan Short is founder of a Texas-based civic marketing company called Civic Brand, which works to develop brands for various cities. He says many towns are using their culinary culture to make themselves more attractive to visitors and potential transplants. I think people today expect a lot more out of the places that they live than maybe they did in the past. Cities are looking for young, productive people. And those people, they tend to expect an exciting sense of place. They can't compete just on the fact that there is the job. They have to compete on a number of things. And great restaurants and great food that isn't just the chain place that they can get anywhere, but something that's unique, I mean, that's a huge thing. Charlotte is a banking town and historically hasn't really had that sense of place. Like the diners at the Stanley reminisced, the eating options people had to choose from consisted of steakhouses where bankers closed deals over pricey dinners, or a smattering of chains. But since the 1990s, the city's population has more than doubled. Cranes tower over rising condo projects all over town. And new breweries and restaurants have popped up like mushrooms after a good rain. So the city is trying to tell the world, Charlotte finally has something new going on. Chef Mark Jacksina has been here for 14 years. He's owned some restaurants. Today, he's executive chef at Earl's Grocery. And he hosts an online interview show with local chefs called Order Fire. As the customers grew to trust the chefs, the chefs started to push a little bit harder on their food, which caused the guy down the street to work a little bit harder. And I think, I, for me, that's my opinion. That's sort of what I saw, how Charlotte started to happen. He says the town is in its third trimester. 
Lots has already materialized, but the thing Charlotte is going to be hasn't been born yet. I don't, I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but Charlotte's very Instagrammable right now. As in, it's always chasing the new trendy restaurant. At the same time, paradoxically, he says the city has retained some of its conservatism, perhaps rooted in the banking industry. It's almost like we're all teenagers here and the parents are pretty cool, but not too cool. You know, it's like you can drive past nine, but I expect you're home by 10 o'clock. So when it comes to telling the story of Charlotte and its culinary evolution, its new face, he thinks the narrative of new southern cuisine in his town can get tired. Or at least it's incomplete. Most of the restaurants that get pressed in Charlotte, these, these chefs and owners are friends of mine. So I'm, I, I, I don't mean anything against any of these people doing stuff, but there's, there's these guys that are doing tremendous work. And then there's this great little halal joint right down the street from my house that puts out some of the best fried chicken that you never see on the list. Tickets for the Beard practice dinner at the Stanley cost $95 per person. Frankly, that's a steal for the amount and quality of food and alcohol served, but undeniably pricey for a Monday night dinner for most people. The crowd seemed well-heeled and, like the chefs, mostly white. For a town building its brand on diversity and inclusion as much as on food, I wondered, if this is Charlotte's coming out party, who's invited? Earlier that day, I ate lunch at Yafo, a fast casual Israeli restaurant about a mile from the Stanley. Over fried eggplant and perfectly browned cauliflower, I had posed that question to another local chef, Greg Collier. Greg owns a breakfast restaurant called The Yoke and is a founder of Soul Food Sessions, a dinner series that promotes chefs of color. I can't argue with the choices. How are you going to argue with Paul Verica, Joe Kendrick, Bruce Moffitt, William Disson, and Ashley Boyd? Like, you can't really... You can't argue with it. You know what I'm saying? It's not a bad choice. It's not like um, it's not like if you're not picking an all-star team, it's like, why you, why, what? You don't have, like, what? How did you not have put Jordan in? Like, we got, I think it's a great squad, but I do think that Charlotte as a whole needs to make diversity a more important piece of the message versus it being a footnote. And I think, you know, for the James Beard dinner, that's not the point of the James Beard Dinner. The point of James Beard Dinner is to celebrate Charlotte, North Carolina as a food scene and not diversity. But if I had my pick, because that's extremely important to me, I would have liked that to be a part as well. But Greg says the city and CRVA are listening, especially when people push, which he does. And why Charlotte is so dope is because it's not being old South. It's not saying, just sit down, your time will come. To him, that means the other stories, which are waiting in the wings, will soon be told. Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned business in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has been making cast iron cookware since 1896. Lodge Cast Iron Camp Dutch Ovens are the first choice for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their skillets and griddles are perfect for searing steaks and roasting vegetables at home. And professional chefs from Atlanta to Los Angeles stock their kitchens with Lodge seasoned steel skillets and griddles. No matter what, or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles, just for you. For over 100 years of meals and memories, and for Lodge Cast Iron's support of this podcast, we say thanks. Hey, this is John T., back with Gravy co-host Melissa. Here in Oxford, we know what it's like to sell a town. In the two Manning eras, our hometown of Oxford, Mississippi, thought of itself as a football town. 
Owing to William Faulkner and Larry Brown and K.S.A. Lehman and Beth Ann Finley, Oxford has more recently styled itself as a literary town. Now, Oxford is being sold as a culinary center. Which kind of makes sense. Because if you think about it, there are six James Beard medals scattered around this town. Identity shifts and changes over time for people and for places. This begs a question. What happens when a city tries to rebrand itself, to change its identity? Irina takes a closer look at Charlotte, which is now working to do just that. As Charlotte grew, its demographics changed. Tom Hanchett is a community historian who for a long time worked at Charlotte's Levine Museum of the New South. He first came to Charlotte in 1981. About 1990, for a bunch of reasons that people don't fully understand yet, Charlotte and, and a number of other these new South cities in the, in the southern inland um, started to really attract newcomers from across the United States. Many of these newcomers were foreign-born, and for some context, that was a novelty in these parts. Foreign-born folks, uh, well, they've gone from basically 1% to about 15% in that 25 years. Numerically, there still aren't many of them. But if you consider that we had almost no immigrants, it really gets your attention. Many came to work on construction projects, like the banking towers, Then they called their friends and family and said, hey, there are jobs here. It's warm and clean. All of a sudden, we're on Central Avenue. Central Avenue had been a sort of barely middle-class corridor. There's a shopping mall at the end of it, a lot of vacant stores in between that shopping mall had sucked the life out of back in the 80s. Um, I went away for a while, came back in the 90s, and all of a sudden they were full of Latino bakeries and, um, you know, Bosnian groceries and um, not just one ethnicity, but people from all over the world. Tom says longtime Charlotteans have had to adapt. Chef-driven restaurants, that's expected. I know what a chef does. I know why that's cool. I've never seen that before. Boy, that's yummy. But a Bosnian restaurant, yeah, we got one. Is it a good one? I don't know. I don't know anything about Bosnian food. And so there's, I think there's a learning curve in any city that's dealing with new traditions. That sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. It takes a while for them to get to where they want to be, and it takes a while for the rest of us to to grab hold of the cool stuff that's going on. In the early 2000s, two women decided to help people along. Nini Bautista de Garcia is a well-traveled nuclear chemist. Nancy Plummer is a Charlotte native with deep connections in the city. They met at a community meeting. Nancy says they both like to eat and were kind of social do-gooders. Dr. Nini and I, my husband used to say, if I didn't know she was from Philippines and you're from Charlotte, I think y'all were sisters. You just, you think alike, you talk alike. Nancy and Nini focused in on a part of town called Charlotte East, which includes the Central Avenue corridor where Tom, the historian, had discovered Latino bakeries and Bosnian groceries. At that time, there were a lot of bad press for the Charlotte East. All, all the uh, shootings, even if you have shootings elsewhere, they would report the shootings in Charlotte East. And we wanted to help the uh, immigrant restaurateurs. Their goal was to rebrand the neighborhood as a fun, safe place for foodies and families to explore the diversity of Charlotte. It was a grassroots economic development plan. Make people come for the restaurants, and everything else would follow. A rising tide lifts all ships. 
And so the first step was really to see what we have in the Charlotte East. So we were going from restaurant to other restaurants and checking the food. Oh, we ate a lot of food there, my gosh. <laughs> Trying out yeah, all the ethnic food. She is a little picky, you know, <laughs> in her food. And when and when uh, uh, she looks at something and says, oh, Dr. Nini, you try it first. <laughs> it was on you. They had to encourage the restaurant owners as much as the diners because yes. uh, I, I, uh, we come in with Nancy and uh, they haven't seen any, any white people <laughs> in the restaurant. And I come here with speaking Spanish to them. I said, oh, <laughs> who are these people? <laughs> who are these people and what are they doing? Eventually, Nini and Nancy set up an event where people would show up and buses would take them around to restaurants in Charlotte East. Each bus would visit three restaurants and would have a guide to lead the curious diners. So this rebirth of Charlotte as a culinary destination? We feel like we were beginning of that. We have. The 16th Taste of the World event took place on a warm fall evening. The event costs $50 and attracts a fairly diverse group of diners. Nowadays, it regularly includes more than two dozen restaurants and hundreds of diners. I get on bus number eight with Liz Millsaps Hagler, a board member with Charlotte East, which now puts on the event. We're, we're off then. So which restaurant? The first stop is a King of Spicy, which sits in a strip mall side by side with a quinceanera dress shop, an adult DVD store, and a place to send money and packages abroad. One of the owners, Chuda Dimal, welcomes the group. Um, we do have an Indian and Nepalese food up here today. Okay. And yep, I, guess I got a naan, butter naan, and we got chana masala, chickpeas. Liz loads up a plate and plops down in a booth. She's a Charlotte native and can be a little suspicious about the city's new branding campaign. I think it's ironic because most of my life they've been pushing to have a world-class city. Um, that's not what I see them pushing. They seem to be pushing more the high-end stuff, the south end, places like that. And we have a world-class city right here with people from all over the world, all different foods, and they're not pushing that. So where does food figure in that? What kind of food do you want in a world-class city? Every kind there is on earth, you know. It, it's nice to be, and, and plus every price range, you know. A world-class city has to serve every citizen, whether it's high-end or um, minimum wage workers. And so I, that's one thing I think a lot of the um, immigrant-owned restaurants have been able to do is to feed the construction workers and the hotel workers and that kind of thing. That's what a world-class city needs to do is to serve everybody. The CRVA is one of the Taste of the World sponsors. The event didn't get as much money as the beer dinner because it's the beer dinner they're hanging the brand on. But in some ways, the two are parallel efforts. The CRVA is pushing the chef-driven restaurants to people outside the city and is helping promote the booming international food scene to people already in Charlotte. Ryan Short, the civic brand marketing executive, says that approach makes sense to him. And many marketing firms follow a similar pattern. They kind of focus first on tourism. And in that case, it's really easy to focus on what would be the stereotypical like local fare for that area. 
Charlotte culinarians point to the local ecosystem of farms, of which there are about 200 within a 50-mile radius, as one of the factors that makes food here fresh, exciting, and sustainable. If I'm visiting from, say, New York, I'm going to want to try how the local chefs are using these local ingredients. But when you're talking about recruiting talent from an economic development standpoint, they don't just want to eat every night that they live in a city, the stereotypical local thing for that. So I think in that case, touting the international aspect and the diversity of options, and there is a wide range, actually makes a ton of sense to promote that as opposed to just trying to hang your hat on, we are this one thing. In other words, you have to adjust the brand depending on the audience, even if you're still using food to build it. Back on the tour, we find the second restaurant next door. Tacos del Regio is owned by a family from Monterey, Mexico. The matron, Aida Garcia, says Charlotte is one of the prettiest cities in the United States. She's in love with it and doesn't plan on leaving ever. Her sons, David and Alberto, turn out taco after taco. It's authentic food from Monterey, Aida says, and rushes it off to a table. Fady Brown is finishing her tacos. Food is good. I like spicy food, so... Um, really didn't eat tacos and never really liked guacamole, but it was pretty good. I will come back. I sure will. It's her first time on the tour. You got a diverse of restaurants coming in. You got the Indians. You got the thighs. It's just a way that I can change my life to see something different that I hadn't seen when I was growing up, and I like that. It's a city city. As the group boards the bus for their last stop of the night, Aida picks up a microphone and serenades us out the door. It's a love song, and she seems to be singing it to her town. This episode of Gravy was reported and produced by Arena Joroff, who, until she was in her 20s, had never eaten fried chicken. Special thanks today go to who, Melissa? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam, Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher, and Wendy Dorr and Eve Tro are SFA's fairy godmothers. Visit southernfoodways.org to read oral histories that SFA collected on the Central Avenue corridor in Charlotte. You can also watch a film we made there on Brooks Sandwich Shop. While you're there, please consider making a donation to support our work, including this very podcast. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. You've been listening to Gravy.